this is Emily Wagner. I'm a second-year resident here at Indiana University in Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics. Today I have Dr. Bobby Byrne with me. She's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. She's also an attending neonatologist at Riley Hospital for Children. She's also very interested in simulation and really good at it. She's here today to talk to us about normal newborns as well as abnormal newborns. This constitutes 3.5% of the board exams, according to the outline. We'll divide it into two sections today. First, we'll talk about normal newborns. Then, we'll talk about abnormal newborns. Dr. Byrne, can you say hello? Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so first, I'll be an intern on my newborn rotation. I'm really nervous about it because I haven't done it before. I'm on overnights and I get woken up at 3 a.m. I'm on my way to a delivery. What should I be thinking in my head? Specifically, how do I manage the temperature in the room for that little newborn? Mm -hmm. So it will really depend, right, on if you're talking about going to a preterm delivery or a term delivery. Assuming that you're on the newborn rotation, I would assume you're going to a term delivery. So you have to remember that there are a lot of different ways that newborns lose heat, right? And they're much more susceptible to losing heat than you and I. So they have increased body surface area. They have, they're wet. Um, the, they don't have the same mechanisms, central nervous system-wise, for keeping their temperature up that we do. And so we have to do a couple of things. First, we make sure that the warmer is on and that the baby has a warm environment, whether it's going to be the warmer, the open bed warmer, or whether it's going to be the mother, who's a great source of heat for a well baby. Um, the other thing is making sure that we have towels and warm blankets so that whether or not they go to the warmer or they're on mom, we still warm them and dry them off with a blanket because those convective and evaporative losses can be pretty significant. And then finally, putting a hat on is going to be important after you dry their head because, again, the surface area, their body surface area is higher than ours, and in their head in particular, the body surface area is quite high. As far as the room temperature, the World Health Organization recommends that all newborn deliveries occur in higher room temperatures than we would normally do here in the United States. But our practice in neonatology is generally that we don't get as concerned about the room temperature when it's a term baby like we do when it's a preterm baby. Okay. So what if I forget to do one of those things? Is the baby going to show me any signs that uh, he or she is losing heat? So a couple of things. One is that you can think about anybody who's cold. You have a much harder time regulating your cardiovascular system. So a cold baby may become apneic, may not have a good heart rate. And then certainly a cold baby's going to spend a lot of extra energy trying to stay warm. And then they're going to become hypoglycemic relatively sooner than a baby who's at normal temperature. So jitteriness and poor feeding might be something that you'll notice in that baby if they're cold. Okay. Can we talk about the radiant warmer for a second? Yes. What are the benefits, and then what do I need to be really careful about when we're using the warmers? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of things. One is that it provides this, obviously, radiant heat source to the baby. The thing that you have to know about the open bed warmers is there are two settings on the open bed warmers. One is called servo, and the other is called manual, and sometimes that manual setting is called the baby setting. And the thing that you have to know about it is that before the baby is born, you want to have it on the manual or baby setting, and you want to have it turned up to 100%. And that's what those little bars are that you'll see on the open bed warmer. You want to turn it up to 100% so that that area is really nice and warm before the baby arrives. 
Once the baby arrives, if the baby has to stay on the open bed warmer for any length of time, say mom is in a C-section or say mom has some other complications, then you want to put a temperature probe on the newborn and then the temperature probe goes from the baby to the open bed warmer and then the open bed warmer needs to be turned to servo. And in the servo mode, you'll be able to, the bed will help control the amount of heat based on what the baby's temperature is. So that's something you really need to know about the beds is how, the, what's the difference between servo and manual and when you use those two modes. So when I walk into the room, the nurse usually has done a lot of this for me. Mm -hmm. So can I assume that the radiant warmer is on manual when If I walk you in? see, if it's not alarming and the if the bars are the whole way up to 100%, you can assume it's on manual. If it's on servo mode and it doesn't detect a temperature from the baby, then it will continue to alarm until it detects a temperature. So if it's not alarming, it's probably in manual mode. One of the things that all of us should do, especially at our final place of practice, so wherever you end up in the in the world in your practice. You want to look at the beds that you have and just make sure there's a couple of key things. Usually, if you can turn it on and turn up the heat, that's the most that you probably have to do because you're right, most of the time we have other staff helping to turn it on. But if you're the first one there and that's all you can, if at least you can get that done, that's really helpful for the baby. Okay. All right, so let's say that we do have a baby that was born via C-section and they need to stay with me in the warmer for a little bit. Can we talk about the APGAR score? Mm -hmm. I have a really hard time remembering the components of the APGAR score. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. I think that the most important component of the APGAR score is heart rate. Because we know that that's we, the baby doesn't have to be breathing on their own for the baby to be stable, but we know that the heart rate needs to be up. And so for heart rate, if the heart rate is less than 100, they get a 1. And if it's greater than 100, they get a 2. And if there's no heart rate, then they get a 0. And again, I always tell parents that's the most important 2 that you can get in your life. The rest of the things we can help deal with. Then it's respiratory. So babies can come out apneic, in which they get a zero. They can have some gasping breaths that are not regular, and that would be a one. Or they can be actively crying, which would be a two. Tone is another one. And so tone is pretty easy, and sometimes I think the difference is, what's the difference between tone and reflex? So the way I think of tone is, like, that's when you just look at the baby. And is the baby have, what you should see is, if the baby, baby gets a zero, if the arms and legs are just extended and floppy. Okay. Baby gets a one if there's some flexion of the, you know, the hips, the knees, and the arms. And then the baby gets a two if the baby's actively moving and has great flexion in those. Reflex is a little bit different. That's when if you touch the baby, the baby responds to the stimulus that you give, right? So it's a reflex touch sure. response. So that Reflex is a little bit harder, but what you'll see is usually people will lift up the hand or the arm, and if the hand just drops back down to the table, um, they have no reflex. They probably have no tone, too, and I think that's why it gets a little confusing, reflex and tone. Um, and if they try to, you know, pull away or have a little bit of um, response to that, then that's a one. And if they, if you grab their hand and pull it up and they have a great response back um, and they go back into flexion and they try to actively not fight you on that, but actively you know, go against you on that. And of course, I'm sitting here making a lot of um, motions with my <laughs> hands, which you cannot see on a podcast. But 
it's watching a YouTube video for reflex is probably the, an easier way sure. to really get a handle on that. And then color, of course. Um, color is, you know, if they're completely pale centrally and um, peripherally, then they get a zero. And then, again, the thing that you really care about is being pink centrally, where you get a one. And if your hands and feet are pink, too, you can get a two, but that's fairly rare in my book. So. Okay, Apgar. This should not be that hard, right? It's a mnemonic. A-P-G-A-R. Apgar. Appearance, which is color. P, pulse. Grimace, which is the uh, reflex that they talk about. Activity and respiration. A-P-G-A-R. Appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, respiration. Each thing you can get zero to two points for. If it's perfect, they get two. If it's the worst, they get zero. Anything in between is one. Now, obviously, this is a simplified version, but I like simple. Just remember, don't give them a 10. No one ever gets a 10. Except for my son. He did get a 10 when he was born, because he's perfect. So... Now I'm in the delivery room. Mom is still, she's getting sewn up from her C-section. We're doing some baby measurements now. So we're measuring the head, we're measuring the weight, we're measuring the length. Why is it really important for me to take those measurements and plot them on a growth chart? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are any number of reasons why it's important, but let's start with just kind of basic things. Is, did the baby have normal growth in utero? And so if any of those parameters are significantly low or significantly high, then of course we worry about lots of different things, right? So as an example, really small head circumference or really large head circumference, especially in relationship to the rest of the measurements, the length and the weight, can indicate significant neurodevelopmental issues, right? Obviously, larger head size, it can be just familial, but it can also mean hydrocephalus. Um, Smaller head size can be associated with things like trisomies. Um, we also want to look at the baby's total measurements, so weight, length, and head circumference as a unit. Does the baby have low parameters for all or high parameters for all? And, you know, those have, of course, implications. Again, low parameters for all. We wonder about did the baby have good nutrition inside? Not necessarily that mom didn't take care of herself or eat well, but did the placenta have good enough blood flow? Um, and then certainly a very large baby with all parameters that are large, we would think about, was there some perhaps maternal diabetes and we might have to watch the blood sugar a little bit closer. So all of those growth parameters are really important and can lead us to investigating further first other diagnoses. Okay, residents, so do you hear that? Maybe common sense, but take those measurements and make sure you put them on a growth chart because it will help when you're tucking in the baby later. There might be some extra things to do. Okay, so what if I get called to a delivery and the mom isn't quite sure about her dates? Nurses aren't quite sure about how many weeks along she is. We don't have that many records for her. When the baby comes out and comes to me on the warmer, is there any, is there any way that I can tell how old the baby might be? Are there any certain physical characteristics that might give me a clue? Mm-hmm. The things that are most obvious that I would look at are clearly size. It seems to be obvious, although there are LGA and SGA, large for gestational age and small for gestational age babies. So that's not the best indicator. But if you have a relatively large baby um, that you can start assuming term. And then there are things like 
are their breast bud development that you see more in term babies. Um, look at the genitalia. It's a pretty quick and easy way to know if a baby looks term or not. You know, males will generally have their testicles down and um, a pretty well-developed scrotum, whereas preterm males, often the scrotum is relatively small where the testes are high in the canal. And same thing with the female, you know, a large labia majora covering the labia minora is more consistent with term, whereas preterm infants usually have, preterm female infants have a larger labia minora. Clearly, hands and feet are another thing. Really smooth hands and feet are more indicative of a preterm baby. And when I say smooth, they're all soft, of course, but smooth really is the amount of kind of wrinkling that we would see on their hands and feet. And those are some early, easy things to help decide if the baby looks term or preterm. Is there anything else with the skin that we might look at? You know, certainly in very preterm babies, the skin is more translucent and thin. Um, that you know, it's especially true for babies who are really preterm. So the 23 to 26 or 7 weekers. Then once you get to 28 weeks, the skin starts to look a little less um, uh, see kind of see-through is the way some people describe it. You don't see as many veins anymore. But then in term skin, it becomes significantly tougher and um, you don't see as many veins. So preterm babies, extremely preterm, you can use their skin as a judge. But after 28 or 30 weeks, then I don't use skin as much anymore. Okay. So I heard you mention small for gestational age. The boards really wants us to know the difference between small for gestational age or SGA versus preterm gestation in low birth weight infants. Can you talk about that a little bit? Mm, sure. It's relatively common sense, right? Um, but this is where it goes back to what you said, Emily, about putting them on the growth chart. The growth chart needs to have, you need to plot them by their gestational age. And, you know, obviously small babies aren't necessarily small for gestational age. So sure. you're right. So small for gestational age versus preterm infants who are small. Obviously, preterm infants can be small for their age, appropriate for their age, or large for their age, just like term babies can be. And so when we plot the baby, which again goes back to what you said, Emily, about making sure that we plot them on a growth chart, we want to make sure that we have the best dating that we can to estimate where we want to plot them, because we plot them by gestational age. And then for small for gestational age, those babies would be below the 10th percentile. So we can have a term baby who plots at 38 or 39 or 40 weeks, who's less than the 10th percentile, and they're small for gestational age. And we can have a baby who's at 28 weeks or 26 weeks, who is appropriate for their weight for a baby who is 28 weeks, or they can also be small for gestational age if they're less than the 10th percentile for their age or weight. So the weight itself is not what matters. It's plotting it on the growth chart appropriately. Okay. Let's stay in the delivery for just a couple more scenarios here. I like the delivery. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> what, if, what if baby comes out and I don't hear the baby cry at the perineum? And the baby comes over to me and still isn't really taking its first breath. We check the umbilical cord. Heart rate is okay, but what's my first step to help this baby? Mm -hmm. So first I just want to tell you that the newer NRP recommendations are going to recommend auscultation with your stethoscope to try to get a better estimate of the heart rate rather than palpation of the umbilical cord. Okay. Certainly if it's a brisk heart rate, you're going to get a good 
feel of the umbilical cord and, and have a good heart rate. But what we know by from a couple of studies is that we are better at estimating heart rate if we're auscultating. So I'll back up and say um, don't use the umbilical cord as much as we used to be using that and use your stethoscope to estimate your heart rate. Okay. So the question was if heart rate is low. If heart rate is okay. Oh, heart rate and is by, okay. And mm-hmm. by okay... Maybe we should review what that means. Yeah, what is okay? So okay is greater than 60 and rising, and where we really want it to be is greater than 100. So your heart rate is okay, but the baby still isn't breathing. So you want to do the least invasive maneuvers to try to get that baby to breathe. The least invasive things are warming, drying, and stimulating the baby. And often, most of the time, 99% of the time, that's going to work to get the baby to take some good breaths. And once the lungs fill with air the pulmonary vascular resistance goes down and the heart usually doesn't have any trouble pumping at that point, able to generate a good increase in heart rate. So the next logical thing then is to ask what if that, what if the baby doesn't take a breath after stimulation? And then the main thing to remember is that ventilation is going to be the key to getting this baby resuscitated. Ventilation will increase the baby's heart rate to a normal range 99% of the time if it is done well. So before we put positive pressure ventilation on a baby, we need to clear the airway, which means bulb suction of the mouth and then the nose, making sure we get both of them, and then applying a mask, an infant mask, that is appropriate for the baby. That, you know, I think sometimes people wonder, well, what is the appropriate size mask? And clearly you want to cover both the mouth and the nose, and you really want to avoid the mask on the eyes and putting pressure on the eyeballs. If that's if you only have one mask to begin with and you have to get started, you get started, but then you try to find an appropriate mask so that we're not causing trauma to the eyes. Um, we want to provide breaths at a rate of 40 to 60 a minute, and so that is breathe, two, three, breathe, two, three. The other thing about that breathe, two, three, is that if you are providing the inhalation as you're saying breathe and you're allowing exhalation time during the two, three, that simulates almost a normal respiratory cycle because our inspiratory time is roughly a third of our respiratory cycle. So if you think about it as breathe, that's one-third, and that's the inspiratory time, and then two-three, that's the expiratory time, um, that really helps give the baby some physiological breaths as well. So you want the rate to be 40 to 60. You want it to be that there's an eye time of roughly a third, so breathe two-three, breathe two-three, And then you want to look for things like chest wall rise. Do I have air movement using my stethoscope auscultating? And then, of course, the best indicator that you're providing effective positive pressure is that that heart rate will come up. Some people think that an effective resuscitation is where the heart rate is up and the baby is breathing on its own, but that's not true, actually. There's a lot of reasons why babies won't breathe in the delivery room, and as long as you get that heart rate up, that's a successful resuscitation. Baby does not have to be breathing. Somebody just has to be breathing for them, either them or us. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit more about more advanced steps in the NRP algorithm uh, when we talk about abnormal newborns. So I'm glad we could review just a couple first steps, but we'll go into that more in depth for the next section. So, okay, final, final delivery room scenario for this section. So I'm wrapping up the baby, put the little hat on, walk it over to mom and say, congratulations, mom, and I hand her the baby, and he sticks his little fingers out, and mom says, why are his fingers blue? Why are his toes blue? And she's really concerned. What should I tell her? Mm-hmm. You should tell her that it's completely normal for newborns to have 
peripheral cyanosis, so the hands and the feet. And that can even last really a couple of days, although usually after the first day it's, it's much better. But you want to tell them that the most important thing is that the baby's heart is really doing a great job pumping blood to the central parts of the body, including the brain and the internal organs. And so as long as the baby's pink down the central part of the body, that's exactly what we need to see. And that those blue hands and feet are normal, nothing to worry about, and we'll keep an eye on it for the next day or so. So Emily, before we move on, I just wanted to say one other thing about well babies in the delivery room. That's really, I think, the best time to do an exam on the baby. First of all, they're usually relaxed. Their abdomen exam is really, you can often feel their kidneys, which is hard, much out of the delivery room. Um, and it's a really good time to ensure that you're not missing any anomalies, like making sure that the palate is intact, making sure that there's a patent anus, because those are really bad things to miss outside of the delivery room. So I would just say trying to do a thorough exam, as thorough as you can in the delivery room, is a really helpful thing. Okay. That's really good advice, especially because I feel bad later on taking baby from mom and yes. causing a ruckus when I go in the room. Yes. So. Agree. Okay. All right. So we're out of the delivery room. I tucked mom and baby in, and the family's really excited. I'm getting pretty sleepy because it's now 4.30 in the morning. I'm putting baby's orders in for the morning. What medications and what things do I really need to make sure that this newborn is going to get? One of the nice things about all hospital systems now is that they generally have pre-generated order sets for newborn babies. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't know what's on there and pay attention to it. So certainly, newborn babies all need eye prophylaxis with erythromycin. They all need vitamin K. And most often, newborns will get a hepatitis B vaccine initially. If mom's maternal serologies are unknown, then we have to do many, many other things, and we can probably get into that at another time. But assuming that all of her serologies are negative, those are the initial things. In addition, if mom's blood type is O, then we're going to want to see a blood type on the baby to know whether or not there's ABO incompatibility, increasing the risk for jaundice. So those are some really key things medication-wise and lab-wise. Okay. So can you remind me what the erythromycin is trying to prevent? So eye prophylaxis is to prevent ophthalmia neonatorum, which is a word that you'll see on the boards. They love that. And really, it's eye infection of the newborn. A long time ago, they realized that women could pass gonorrhea in particular to their newborn baby's eyes, causing blindness. And so we prevent neonatal infections caused by certain STDs with erythromycin ointment. We use that now. Um, there might be a question on your boards about using silver nitrate, which is what we used to use in infant eyes, and that does not protect against things like chlamydia. So um, silver nitrate is no longer used, and now it's really just erythromycin ointment. So you mentioned vitamin K. What if mom refuses the vitamin K for some reason? Can you talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of hemorrhagic disease, what I might look for? Right. So as you mentioned, vitamin K helps prevent hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. I would describe for parents that newborns don't have the ability to make vitamin K, which is essential in helping to prevent hemorrhage or bleeding. That once their gut is colonized, then those fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, K, we start making more. But in the beginning, they don't have enough vitamin K, so they're really at risk for having hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. Vitamin K is a really important component of our newborn care. 
Finally, you also mentioned newborn screening. I know that that happens more towards the end of the hospital stay, usually. Uh, can you talk about maybe how the diseases are chosen for the newborn screen? We generally choose diseases that have some that we have some ability to intervene on as a newborn. So if you think about hypothyroidism as a great example, um, newborns who are diagnosed with hypothyroidism early have much less um, chance of having developmental delays and neurodevelopmental difficulties with their hypothyroidism. Things like galactosemia, clearly I mean, those kids are really at risk for gram-negative infections, so catching that early is very important. So all of those diseases, if caught early, can have intervention. Is any of this sounding familiar? If you've listened to the rest of the podcast this month, then you probably have already learned that galactosemia is associated with E. coli sepsis, and you've already learned that the newborn screen has to be done after 48 hours of protein nutrition in order to pick up the uh, most amount of kids with the disorder. If you want to hear more, make sure you listen to the metabolism genetics section this month. Now, not literally not all of them. Like cystic fibrosis, for example, doesn't usually show up in the newborn period. However, um, there can be symptoms by six months to a year, respiratory symptoms, and so having that diagnosis early on is important. Maybe not exactly in the newborn period, but in the first year of life. Okay. So diseases that we can intervene on early or that might affect the long-term outcome for the child. Correct. Okay. All right. So I've finally got this baby tucked in for the night. I get to go home and sleep. And then the maybe the day after, I come back in and I'm rounding for the morning. I'm reviewing all the chart information for the baby. How do I know that my baby has gotten enough fluid? Mm-hmm. So babies obviously can feed in one of two ways, breast or bottle feeding. When babies bottle feed, it's really quite easy to know exact volumes, but breastfeeding is, I think, where we have a little bit more difficulty knowing if babies are getting adequate volumes. Pretty much the first day of life, babies have so much extra fluid that their bodies are able to compensate for the lack of maternal milk production. So mom's colostrum, even just a little bit of colostrum, is probably going to be sufficient. So the way we know, though, if the baby has either increased caloric requirements are baby's glucose will be stable if they're getting enough nutrition, Um, baby will have hypoglycemia if they have some kind of increased metabolic need, like maybe they're cold, like we talked about before. Um, So making sure that their glucose has been appropriate is an important thing. Second is that we know that they're going to lose weight. And again, it's because they all have some excess fluid and they'll lose some of that water weight. So weight gain isn't an important part in the first couple of days, but whether they're voiding or stooling becomes really important. So do you know the daily fluid requirements per kilogram of body weight, or at least where I might be able to look that up? Mm -hmm. So we consider 60 milligrams per kilogram per day, roughly what? 60 milliliters. Yes, I'm sorry, what did I say? Okay, milligrams. Well, I'm sorry, yes, 60 mLs <laughs> okay, per kilo perfect. per day. 
will be what we consider roughly the requirements for a term baby. However, we know that most term babies do not get 60 mLs per kilo per day if they're breastfeeding, and they probably start out somewhere in the 20 mL per kilo per day range, which generally works out just fine. And then as mother's milk comes in, the baby will start getting closer to the 60 mLs per kilo per day, probably on day two or three, maybe day four. And then after that, their requirements just continue to increase over the next couple of days. Okay. Is there any difference between a full-term and a preterm baby in their fluid requirements? Yeah, significant difference. And again, it goes back to preterm babies have increased heat loss, increased evaporative losses. And so we generally have to give a preterm baby, an extremely preterm baby, might need even 140 or so mLs per kilo per day to maintain hydration. But a uh, a preterm baby in the 28 to 32 week range, generally approximately 100 mLs per kilo per day is going to suffice for the first 24 hours. Okay. Uh, you mentioned urination and stooling being mm-hmm. a very good way to mm-hmm. assess or estimate whether a, a baby's getting adequately hydrated. So what if I'm at hour 12 and my baby hasn't urinated yet? What should I be thinking about? What should I worry about? What are my next steps? Mm -hmm. I don't get too worried in the first 12 hours. There's a couple of reasons I don't. One is that often we might miss a void in the delivery room. Second is if the baby otherwise looks well and has normal external genitalia, so we've looked for a hypospadias or we've made sure that the female genitalia looks normal, so we've done that inspection and exam, then I don't get too worried in the first 12 hours, but by 24 hours, absolutely, the infant should have voided. And at that point, I'll do a more thorough exam. Does the baby appear hydrated? Is the baby's glucose appropriate? And then at some point, you have to start thinking about, is there any renal dysfunction that we need to be looking at? Good ways to start with that are obtaining a BMP. Uh, After 24 hours, it's not as reflective of mom's BMP anymore, and so that can be helpful. Certainly on the exam, if you feel masses in the abdomen, that can be helpful. If the baby has a distended bladder, especially in a boy, um, we start thinking about things like posterior urethral valves. So we want to be pretty serious about it after 24 hours. And if the baby appears dehydrated or has any other concerning symptom, then we want to do a much more thorough evaluation of that baby. Okay. What about if I'm ready, getting ready to discharge my family and the baby hasn't pooped yet? Mm-hmm. So normally babies will stool within the first 24 hours. And I, I don't quote me on the exact percentage, but I think it's like 97% of babies will stool within the first 24 hours. And the remaining will stool you know, within the first 48 hours. And so I would not send a baby home who has not passed its first bowel movement. There are too many problems that can occur if that hasn't happened. As long as the baby has past a stool, they don't have to be passing multiple stools, and there's no number of stools a day that's normal. But once we get to discharge, I usually tell the families they have to have at least passed a stool, a nice reasonable sized stool, and they should be, when they go home, voiding approximately five times a day so that you know that they're hydrated reasonably. Okay. If a baby hasn't passed a stool, what things might be causing that? Mm -hmm. So a number of things. One of the reasons that in the delivery room you want to do that physical exam is making sure that the anus is patent because missing a patent anus um, or an anus that's not patent is obviously very bad and the abdomen can become distended. There are a couple of, actually there are a number of other things, but 
Bowel obstruction certainly can happen. Most of the time, if a baby has a bowel obstruction, you're going to see other clinical signs. The abdomen becomes distended. The infant often looks ill or lethargic, uh, refuses to feed. But there are other times when babies can have, uh, for example, meconium plugs, and they can look pretty well for quite a while and still be eating and not having significant distension of the abdomen. So all of those things would need to be ruled out before they leave. The best way to rule that out is to first start with some pretty simple imaging, a flat plate, just a KV. But then after that, you're going to want to start thinking about contrast enemas or upper GI series, depending on where your suspicion is. Okay. So I should worry about bowel obstruction. I should make sure I've done a full physical exam and check that they have a patent anus. And then meconium plug is also something I should be thinking about. Sure. You know, and cystic fibrosis, if it's going to present in a neonate, presents usually with GI symptoms. And so often that's how you'll catch cystic fibrosis in a newborn. It's not generally respiratory symptoms. It'll be GI symptoms. So there's really a number of different things that can cause that. Okay. So we talked about what to think about if the baby hasn't stooled yet. I'm also reviewing the morning labs, and it seems as though nursing has checked a point-of-care glucose overnight. Can you talk about what might be different from a point-of-care glucose for a glucose we actually send to the lab? Right. There's a couple of things to think about when you see a glucose value. First is, where was the sample drawn? And that might even be more important to me than whether it's a point-of-care or sent to the lab, because we know that a heel stick, if you think about the heel stick, that is where the least kind of enriched blood is going to be. And so a glucose that I get at the heel doesn't mean as much to me as a glucose that I get from a free-flowing sample, either in a vein or an artery. And then point of care versus sending it to the lab. Often you send it to the lab and it tends to be a little bit higher, but the truth is, is that if it's a heel stick, I'm not sure that it's going to make a huge difference in your management. I think the bigger question is, you know, why was there a glucose obtained? Was the infant symptomatic in some way that made them concerned? And then I would tend to be a little more concerned by a low glucose or reassured by a normal glucose. Finally, the thing about glucose is, is that throughout the ages, it has just been debated what normal glucoses are in newborn babies. And so it's difficult to know for sure. I think all of us feel very uncomfortable when the baby's glucose is in the 25 and less range, and we all feel fairly reassured if the baby's glucose is above 40, but then there's these middle grounds where it's a little bit less clear in an asymptomatic baby how important that glucose number is. So make sure that, I mean, be diligent about your follow-up of glucoses, but know that there's still not clear-cut evidence for what is truly normal in newborn babies. Perfect. So now it is the day of the discharge. Uh, it's September, so mom has probably dressed up the baby in something adorable, maybe a pumpkin hat. She's really anxious to get going. We are talking about a bunch of counseling, anticipatory guidance that she'll need in the next few days. She asked me that she heard, she has heard that yellow skin can be dangerous. And she wants to know, what if her baby's skin starts turning yellow when she leaves? Uh, what's the medical term for this? And then we'll talk about some of the differences between the different types. Mm -hmm. 
So first I would make sure that I reassured her that yellow skin is not dangerous, but yellow staining of other parts of the body is. And so that we call this jaundice. And jaundice, um, most newborn babies will get that yellowish color to their skin or to the sclera in their eyes. And it's a pretty normal process where newborn babies have higher hematocrits when they're first born. They needed those higher hematocrits in utero. If you think about the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve, they needed higher hemoglobin levels to pull oxygen from mom. And so now that they're born, there's a couple of things that contribute to their breakdown of red blood cells. One is that they don't need that same number, that high hematocrit anymore, now that their lungs and heart are doing that work instead of taking it from the placenta. But second, the red blood cells are predominantly made of fetal hemoglobin in a newborn, and so they do not live as long as red blood cells made with adult hemoglobin, which the infant will transition to over the next several months. And so red blood cells break down, very normal process in a newborn baby. As they break down, the way I talk to newborn parents is that I say that the red blood cells break down, they release a yellow substance called bilirubin, and the bilirubin is what makes the skin look yellow. Bilirubin is not dangerous to the skin or to the eyeballs, but it can be dangerous if it gets to a high enough level that it stains a particular part of the brain. And that's why we will watch glucose, or I'm sorry, uh, bilirubins in a newborn baby, especially if a baby has a risk factor like an ABO incompatibility. Residents, just so you know, in a later section, we'll do a mini section about differences between physiologic breastfeeding and breast milk jaundice. We'll cover it a little more in depth and really go through some of the differences because I know I myself have a hard time distinguishing the differences and trying to remember. So we'll cover that at a later time, but just wanted you to know that that is something to be considering in the normal newborn about counseling and the different types of jaundice that there are. This concludes our section of normal newborn from the American Board of Pediatrics outline content review for the boards. I just wanted to thank Dr. Bobby Byrne for being here and to welcome her back for our later section, probably in the next uh, installation of the podcast, where we'll go over the care of abnormal newborns in, in the delivery room. So thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's fun. All right. Thank you.